0: Welcome to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast, where you can learn about the innovative ideas and technologies reshaping the healthcare industry. Join over 150,000 monthly readers and listeners all over the world. Each week, we sit down with some of the most brilliant minds in healthcare to learn what the future holds. The Healthcare Weekly Podcast, healthcare innovation, starts here. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Weekly podcast. I'm Peter Nassim, CEO of Digital Authority Partners and Healthcare Weekly. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Jeff Arnold, one of the most prolific entrepreneurs in the healthcare digital space. Whereas it may be the case that you've never heard of Jeff's name, I am confident that everybody who listens to the podcast has seen and heard of his work. I'm sure you've uh, heard of that little website called WebMD, first with 75 million monthly readers. The website is not that low. Secondly, Jeff founded the company back in 1998 at the age of 28. Jeff is also well known for uh, growing the Works brand and is now the CEO of ShareCare, a digital health company which provides personalized content to help people manage their health, adjust their behaviors, and improve their overall health. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Healthcare Weekly podcast today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Jeff, we'll certainly get to talk a lot about ShareCare today, how it works and how it's intended. But before we go there, I want to take a step back first. You're one of the first entrepreneurs ever to understand the power of content production in general and in the healthcare space in particular. WebMD was all about having an online platform where you can access health information online. And, and mind you, today, things are very different. But when you founded WebMD, only 22 million Americans or 26% of the population had access to the internet. In 2020, 90% of Americans have access to the internet. So over the years, you know, your investments in content-rich platforms have continued to be a trend. So I want to start there. Like, How did you figure out content production and dissemination is something worth investing in. And how has your view towards content matured over time?
1: Sure. Well, you know, back in 1994, I started a telemedicine business before WebMD, and we were monitoring people's hearts remotely. And people would send in recordings of their EKG, and then we would fax it out to doctor's offices. And 1998 rolls around and thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice if instead of sending up fax where I was getting a lot of artifacts in the EKGs, if we could put it online and providers and their staff could see the EKG the same time we were seeing it, and light bulb kind of goes off in my head, and I'm like, you know, really, what healthcare needs is a homepage where all this information can come together in in one place. And so I, you know, I sell the heart monitoring business, and we start WebMD. And this was really before Google, which makes me feel really old, and my kids can't even understand what that means when I tell them that. <laughs> but it was before. Or Google. ahead of the curve. And so as. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I started off as it was an EKG business. And then I realized that wasn't enough information for doctors and others. I needed more information and got really inspired that really what the internet was, it was providing access. You know, now we think of access into healthcare for services for different reasons. And we think of just purely information. But back in 1998, it was about access for information that you could get not just from your doctor, And this was before Google. And so what I kind of learned early on that if WebMD was going to grow, it was going to grow word of mouth. And we had to provide quality content that was expert driven and was right 100% of the time and kind of fell into that content creation category of kind of the golden rule of medicine, which is do no harm. And started to see the power of providing somebody with trusted, high quality, relevant information on demand, which is what the internet offered and have invested in that kind of theory ever since. You know, you know, how do you create high quality, trusted information on demand for people that's highly personalized? And, you know, as you can see as we go through this COVID nineteen pandemic, I mean the appetite, you know, for that type of information is, is strong in the demand today, probably more so than, you know, even it was back then when it was just first becoming available to people.
0: So you mentioned content accuracy and high quality content, but as we all know, one of the fears that anybody has and go into the internet is the information you find may not be accurate. So I think it's important to kind of talk about how do you make sure you don't only generate high quality content, but when people get to it, they, they trust the source, right? So can you talk about like holistically across all the companies, like how do you establish the trust in your content?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, the way you establish trust is first through transparency. So you have to be really transparent with the user of, you know, what are you doing with their data or just completely transparent. So it's like number one kind of golden rule in building trust. Second is the information has to be medically vetted. And so you have to have a process in place to medically vet and have evidence based content. And you have to make a commitment to keep it updated, which is a you know, is a fairly you know, big commitment. And then it has to be personalized in today's times. And so, where I see the evolution of content that's gone is really in data driven dialogue now. And so, back when we started WebMD, it was still kind of one size fits all. It was trusted, medically vetted, et cetera. But, you know, it was a, kind of a one size fits all where in 2020, it's all about data driven dialogue. So, how can you establish somebody's baseline? How can you establish somebody's real time? And then, how do you take them on a data driven, evidence based journey? And so what we find in content creation, what that journey is, is how do you help somebody understand their numbers? So what's their blood pressure and their BMI and their cholesterol? How do you help somebody reduce risk and the importance of that? So if they smoke or have a high BMI, how do you help somebody manage conditions? So if they're a diabetic or they have asthma or heart disease, how do you help them manage that? How do you help somebody close gaps in care? How do you help somebody optimize their benefits so they understand how to access the healthcare system? And then how do you help somebody understand the role of money in medicine? And that journey is what creates an autobiography for you on health and wellness. And what's really neat about it is that autobiography that's data-driven dialogue that's hopefully done with really compelling content is ever-changing. And so those last chapters are still yet to be written for all of us. And so, you know, how do you learn from the past and how do you inspire behavior change and how do you keep making the ending of the story about well-being and longevity and really encourage people to participate more actively in their health and wellness? So I think content's key to that. I, you know, we can talk about conversational AI and machine learning and all these technologies, you know, empathy and things that are important in creating content, but it's a data driven, evidence based approach that's highly personalized with the ability to deliver the right message at the right time. What I found in my career keeps people engaged. And, you know, and I just always follow that on my career path. So I
0: really, really like this idea of data driven, personalized dialogue that uh, you could have with end consumers. And it got me thinking, you know, like for a very long time, physicians and health entrepreneurs have talked about evidence-based approach to health management. But for, you know, every once a success story, there seem to be like 10 failures when it comes to building digital solutions that actually alter human behavior. So why is it so difficult about positively impacting your personal journey towards choosing a healthier lifestyle? And, like, and do you think, and I think what you've been suggesting, is you think technology as we know it today can not
1: help with improving human behavior, Right. Right. Yeah, I think you know historically it's just hard to get people to engage in their health, and we kind of live in this quick fix society where you know I'd rather take a pill and forget about it and be better than change my behaviors. I think this whole COVID 19 moment that we're experiencing though is going to create a new normal for us where people are really starting to lean in and they're saying, well, who's the most vulnerable for coronavirus? And you're seeing it's people with comorbidities and people that aren't as resilient as maybe they could be. And so I think we have this watershed moment where we're going to go from Blockbuster to Netflix in digital health literally in a matter of weeks. The stuff I've been preaching and working on and trying really hard to make successful for the last 20 years is has still been pushing this boulder up the hill of you know, ultimately getting people to lean into their health. And I think this is our chance. If there's a silver lining in COVID-19, the silver lining is digital health is going from Blockbuster to Netflix, and this is a watershed moment for people and providers.
0: So I'm glad you brought up COVID-19 because you know as we're all aware, like the coronavirus is not only on everybody's mind, but the free flow of information online and on national television makes it kind of almost virtually impossible to determine what's real and accurate than what's fake news. So how does ShareCare help consumers distinguish between the two? You mentioned that, you know, we're yeah, going from yeah. Blockbuster sure. to Netflix, but yeah. how do we actually get there beyond just access and
1: eyes on the prize? Well maybe what I could do is I could take you through kind of what our COVID nineteen response has been. And maybe as along the way we could stop and talk about, you know, I'm sure you'll have questions. I'd like to get your thoughts. But so ShareCare, you know, we started it in 2012 and we've got about 2,600 employees. And what we've been trying to build is, you know, how do we view the smartphone as potentially the greatest healing device that we've ever seen and go to consumers and say, we're going to organize your health care for you because it's too fragmented today. Uh, health systems and employers have vendor fatigue because of all the point solutions and people are flat out confused. And the same way in banking that I remember, maybe it was even a decade ago, I was afraid to give my credit card to Amazon. To so now, I'm thinking I might never, I might not use cash again, you know, kind of going forward. How fast that has changed financial services. Empowering you to take care of your health is going to change as well. And as I said, you know, those moments that we're living in is an accelerator for that. But the key is, is how do I give data ownership to the person? And how do I become completely transparent? And how do I use technology to bring all the stakeholders to the palm of that person's hand? So instead of the person having to go to the hospital's portal, or instead of the person having to download the insurance company's app, or instead of the person only dealing with their benefits during open enrollment with their employer, how together as an ecosystem do we productize engagement with content being the driving force of that so that together we're messaging the person the same way? We're motivating the person the same way. We're managing the person's data the same way. We're measuring effectiveness the same way, and we're creating a movement. So that's you know kind of how has been you know kind of how we've kind of rallied that strategy around COVID nineteen. So for example, we took our editorial team in New York, who's responsible for managing Dr. Oz's fifteen million followers and doing other things, and we turned them into a, a COVID nineteen newsroom. And so I think at last time I looked, we produced 300 articles uh, in the last three weeks on COVID-19 and driven 89 million impressions around that content And it's just one example. And that's been driven a lot by, you know, people are just so confused. They watch CNN and then they watch Fox News and then they go over here and they don't know what to believe. And so, you know, we've tried to step in and put a big effort behind unbiased quality content that does all the myth busting, but also more importantly, helps people make the right practical decisions.
0: So you mentioned 300 piece of content about coronavirus. What is the like, overall recommendation that yeah. you are trying to pass on yeah. to consumers? I mean, there's, as you mentioned, yeah, like,
1: sure. you look at CNN, they tell you one yeah. thing, Fox News tell you something else. Yeah. Well, from a framework standpoint, so if WebMD was all about consumer-driven health care, share care is all about community-driven care. With the idea that as a consumer, I need my doctor and I need my benefits, but I need a safe place to live, work, and play. And the way that you measure if you're successful in improving community-driven care is by looking at well-being. And so so we have a well-being index that we rank order cities and states and counties. And we look at location and say, are the people in that location physically resilient? Are they mentally resilient? Are they financially resilient? And do they have a strong sense of community and purpose? And then, when from an editorial standpoint, when something like COVID 19 happens, we have our editorial team say, look at all of the things that are coming at us COVID related. So, whether it's breaking news or it's a White House briefing or it's the stock market tanking or it's this drugs with this promise or this vaccine in this time, always look at that piece of data through the lens of well being. So, should, am I going to talk about that as it relates to my physical resilience? So, you know, or am I going to talk about that piece of data as it relates to my financial resilience? So that might be the, the CARES Act or, you know, stock market thinking or am I going to talk about it around purpose? So that might be like when voting and primaries change, or am I going to talk about it around community? That might be how to support local merchants. But our lens of the world in COVID-19 is to try to contextualize it on behalf of our readers all around the five domains of well-being. And an effort to try to always strengthen that. so not just point out the problems, but here's what you can do about it. Excellent. Can we go into specifics? Because I
0: think I really like what you're talking about, which is, hey, we look at all of these communities, cities, counties across the country. And we see, for example, let's take a specific example, Chicago, right? So in Chicago, we've been under a stay-at-home order now for two and a half weeks. And I can tell you both anecdotally and from like, you know, what our governor and the general surgeon in Illinois are saying is like, okay, we've been doing this for two weeks, but the case is continuing to grow. People are not listening. They are not staying indoors. How would that scenario impact the type of content that you would present to people in Chicago?
1: Well, you know, so the way my head works around stuff like that is all around frameworks and then I solutions. So the framework that we would look at is, okay, how do you create a blueprint for change? And so the blueprint for change, whether it's COVID-19 or uninsured rates or infant mortality or diabetes, it's the same. So you start off on step one and you look at the data and you assess the situation. And so we get data five ways and we get self-reported data. So we've 45 million people or so take the real-age test. We get device-driven data. So with your permission, you know, I'm looking at your geolocation and your social graph and all the things on your phone. The third is we get claims data. So we have a big B2B business with a lot of health plans and employers. So I get all the pharmacy lab and medical claims. Fourth is we bring in 600 different elements of social determinants of health data. And then lastly, uh, last year we collected 4 million medical records with people's requests and consent. And so we look at all that data and then we say in the spirit of a blueprint for change, the first thing we need to try to do is to get individual transformation. And so within individual transformation, we have to have a go-to-market platform that tells somebody what their baseline is, that's their real age. Tell somebody what their green day is, that's their real time, and that's holistic tracking from how many times are you washing your hands, to are you staying in place, to what's your sleep and other things look like. And then lastly, what's the journey that you're on? And journeys change based on circumstances, health circumstances, political circumstances, pandemic circumstances. And so from a framework standpoint, we would look at everybody in Chicago. I'd look at the data and I'd say, I'd look, I'd say, so based on the data to the individual, around the concept of individual transformation. How am I going to inform that person on their baseline real time and journey? And then as people start to lean in and we start to collect the data, that becomes a heat map for community transformation. And a community transformation lens, it's all based on people, places, and policy. So we start to create content to create a movement around people, places, and policy. I could give you examples for COVID on uh, people would be, you know, a safe distance. Places would be, you know, where you could get tested. Policy would be you know, vaccinations and other things that are, you know, voting and, you know, stay in place laws and things like that. But that's the framework we deployed. And then we're constantly monitoring how that reflects our well being results. So for example, last week we launched a flatten the curve survey and it was all around well being. And so we said, look, we're dispensing all this content with 300 articles alone. But what is what are people saying on the couches? And so we had a hundred thousand people take this viral survey in the last seven days around flattening the curve. And then we go to our public health partners and we say, in our well-being index, this pandemic has now changed, you know, where Chicago ranks in well-being and as cities. And we need to reflect that in our well-being and then take that back up to our data and assess and recalculate our thinking. And then lastly, what we're always modifying in that blueprint for change is what's the health ROI, meaning like the outcomes and the cost savings, but we also look at other things. So how is it affecting property values How's it uh, affecting productivity? How's it affecting philanthropy? And it creates this nice blueprint for change kind of circle that you can put any lines on it. The one I'm describing is COVID-19. But, you know, from a macro standpoint, that's how we act on our framework. So so since you deployed this framework around COVID-19,
0: can you talk about what you've seen? Like, is there a back and forth? Like, can you see a cause and effect? Like, hey, I'm disseminating this content. In these communities, okay, what's the impact? Yeah. Like, is there any data-driven yeah. impact?
1: Yeah. 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 So, like, so the way it works is, so, you know, it starts off, with, like, I need everybody to take the real-age test and join share care. And I don't know if you saw that White House briefing with Dr. Burks where somebody asked her, who's at most risk here? And she said, it's not your age. It's not numerical. It's physiological. And so, for us, that's your real age. And so, we start off where we create that kind of baseline so people know where they're at. And then we start to create content around those different five domains, all in an effort to help improve somebody's real age. So what makes them younger, what's making them older, what's keeping them on track. We then go into a market like Chicago or Atlanta, and we launch our survey. So we say, look, are we current in our thinking? So what's the heartbeat of Atlanta look like right now as it relates to coronavirus? And be able to inform people back real time after they take the survey. Are they helping flatten the curve or not? Then we said, you know, as it relates to COVID-19, we have to build a really robust screener. And so we've got something called AskMD that we've invested tens of millions of dollars in that you can go to and you can give it your chief complaint. Let's say it's a migraine or a fever. And then we ask you questions to get to a likely cause. And then when we give you that likely cause, we geolocate you and triage you. So, you know, you should go to the emergency room. You should stay in place. You should talk to your doctor, or you should do a telehealth visit. We then have created a chatbot that's all AI driven because we said, you know, a lot of places where people in Chicago or Atlanta have needs, they don't have COVID 19 hubs. I mean, they don't have 2,500 people that can build something like this. And so we at ShareCare said, we got to build something like a bug that can be embedded on a school's website, on a church's website, on a primary care doctor's website, so that their patients or employees or parishioners or you know, students could go and quickly get assessed. Then our next you know, kind of rapid response to this was, okay, now we got to get into telehealth because patients can't see their doctor and doctors can't go to their offices. And so this week, you know, we launched a telehealth platform where any doctor can become ShareCare care enabled and offer HIPAA compliant, secure video and text to any of their patients at no cost until September 1st. This weekend, we'll launch a tracker so that people that can track when they started staying in place and then what their symptoms are each day. And it rolls up into a nice dashboard that they can see for themselves and I can roll it up at the zip code level. And then a week from Monday, we're launching a really robust anxiety solution because where we think as we head towards the peak, this is going, is that you know, anxiety in America is going to be really, really high. And so we've been working with some great folks to develop a great anxiety platform that we're going to launch on the 20th of April and that we're going to make available to all our doctors and patients and consumers and clients at no cost per period of time. And so it's a combination of all those things. And I was talking to Dr. Oz the other day on the phone and Dr. Roizen, who's the chief wellness officer at Cleveland Clinic and the dean of public health at Boston University. And what we said is really what this is, everything I just described to you in the moment, as people start to come back to work, is going to be a COVID-19 readiness package. So kind of pre-COVID, I would spend a lot of time thinking about disease management. I think post-COVID, what's going to be sucking up a lot of time is thinking about what's a COVID-19 readiness package. So how do I assess somebody? How do I track their symptoms? How do I give them a help desk as a care coordinator? How do I hook them up to a doctor via telehealth? You know, How do I track their symptoms? How do I get them tested? And then how do I build their resilience?
0: So I have so many questions. I'm going to first continue with (laughs) what you're talking about and then get back to some of the points you've made. Okay, so you have all of these solutions which are both helping Americans at home deal with coronavirus break, data sharing, which then can be mapped onto trends that can impact public and private policy. And that's really, really interesting. But you also talked about this package, readiness package, And I do want to maybe just continue down this path for a bit and ask you, you know, like right now, everybody is kind of living day to day to the next milestone and next report from the White House. There's a lot of discussion about, all right, at some point, we're going to go back to work physically on location. Like, do you think Based on the data that you're seeing right now, it's like, okay, is that realistic anytime soon? But more importantly, I want you to talk more about this readiness package because that's what a lot of employers are concerned with, which is, all right, so let's say we get to a point where the numbers go down and at some point we say, all right, stay-at-home order is done, but everybody is afraid, especially on the employer side, that the second I let everybody come back in, the numbers are going to go back up. So it seems sure. that you're In this package is geared towards yeah. answering that question.
1: Yeah. So I think what's great for all the listeners, you know, just to kind of visualize what I'm talking about is download ShareCare and take the real age test. And in your timeline, you're going to get up-to-date content every day about everything you need to know about COVID-19. You're going to be able to track your green days and, you know, track things like, you know, washing your hands, You're going to be able to track your symptoms and how long you've been at your house. You're going to be able to access a chatbot that's all AI-driven, that's evidence-based, with amazing medical informatics. So if you think you might have COVID-19, I suggest you start here. If you need to talk to a doctor, you can hit a button and we'll hook you up with an emergency room doctor through the platform. And so all these solutions are all deployed right now. And I've got tons of clients across the country that are using these solutions. I did a webinar yesterday. I think it was 600 of our clients from around the country where I was taking through all these things that we're talking about right now and how to use them and access them. But what the realization I've kind of come to is those are great in the moment solutions. And I'm happy that we have them and I hope they help people. But packaged in a little different way, they do become a readiness package because I, I think as we do come back to work, um, these people are talking about immunity certificates and you know all those types of things that may or may not come to fruition, or they're talking about you know using location services to do social contacts and all that kind of tracking technology. But I think at its core, so for somebody who has 2,600 employees, what I want to provide them is I want to be given them a tool that they can assess their well-being you know, which includes their workplace well-being, as well as their home well-being, as well as their community well-being. I want to give them a tool that, if they're having symptoms, that they can do a screener. I want to give them a tool that, if they need to talk to a medical professional, it's a click away. And I'm almost thinking that medical professional, like we employ 300 nurses, I almost think of it like a help desk. And then they have to have the ability to be able to get to a physician using technology. And the physician has to have the ability to get the person tested. And then at the heart of all this is this platform also has to have the tools to build resilience, you know? So how do you help people? How do you give them a digital vaccine, you know, that basically gives them resistance? And to me, that, that's the start of a readiness package that every employer is going to need to offer to their employees. And, and, you know, I always say like whatever we build for an employee or a health plan member or a patient should be available to all and needs to be able to be downloaded for a consumer, you know, not just who pays for it.
0: So let me ask you one thing. I mean, all of these measures and tech-enabled opportunities for managing life, as we know it, once the COVID-19 curve flattens, it seems to be that a lot of them are kind of around like self-policing in a way, right? Like people need yeah. to access these things. They need to consume the content. But you also mentioned that, hey, yesterday I was in a you know, webinar with 600 of our biggest clients. So then the question becomes, how are these, Tools built up in a way that employers can actually get insight. And we can have not just yeah. the policy component, but also the management of the workforce in the age of COVID 19. Yeah,
1: well, I think it goes back to one is all this is connected and tagged. And so you have the benefit of having the analytics. And so our employers and health plans, they have dashboards that roll up all this data, de identified, so they get to see everything you know, Crono so we gives these really robust data packages and then the campaign management tools and so not only do you get the roll-up of the data, but you also get the ability to author into the experience. And so when I was saying before, like those five M's, of how do we message and motivate, and manage data and measure effectiveness into a movement? We give those same tools that we use at ShareCare to the employer, to the provider, and to the health plan. So on demand, they can go in and create a campaign and say, I want to deliver this to all people right now. Or they can do something more prescriptive that says every night at five o'clock, I want to talk to you know, 18 to 49-year-old males in this zip code. And then just like dropping a picture on an Instagram feed, you can drop content into the ShareCare timeline.
0: So what type of data do employers get? And I mean, ultimately, the question really goes down to, let's say I, I use a ShareCare platform, I get this data, how do I act on it? And what are, I mean, data for the sake yeah. of data is, is useless. Ultimately, yeah. what people want is insight yeah. that I can act yeah. on.
1: Yeah, so it all goes back to the journey. Right. So basically, you know, before COVID and, you know, in COVID, like what I'm trying to do is to get people to go down the journey. And then I give data back to my sponsor so they can see where people are on that journey. And so what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get people to take the real age test so I can tell them what their body age is, not their calendar age. And when they do that, I learn about their lifestyle and medical history. And so I get all kinds of insights, you know, when people take the Real Age test about lifestyle and medical history that I can roll up on a population. Second is, you know, I'm doing holistic tracking, so I'm looking at how many steps people are taking, and you don't have to buy a Fitbit. I just tap the accelerometer on the phone. I'm looking at people's sleep, and you don't have to buy a sleep device. I just turn on the sensors and look for light and sound and vibration. I look for stress, and we uh, measure stress in the fractal pattern of your voice. I try to get you to track your meds, so to make sure you're compliant and all these other elements. So I roll all that up. And by the way, that's all done with consent and permission by the user. So the same way that you can turn on or off Wi-Fi, you can turn off or on your sleep or whatever if you didn't want that being tracked. It then back to the journey is I spent five years you know, basically with our team auditing our clients. So we went to Blue Cross Blue Shield plans. We went to Medicaid plans. We went to Medicare Advantage plans. We went to employers and we said, what are all the you people trying to do to this person? And then how can we put that in a journey and get people to go down that journey and then inform you on where we're making progress or where we're hitting speed bumps and let's work together. So that journey is what I was describing before, which is where all the data gets extracted from, which is the first column is know your numbers. So, you know, know all your biometrics and should you have a colonoscopy or not. The second is all around risk reduction. So based on your claims data that I get and your real age, I risk score you like a FICA score. And then I determine what people in the population I need to get to stop smoking or get to lose weight or whatever the, uh, it might be. And then the same for conditions and gaps in care and benefits optimization. So you take that very data-driven model and you're creating content against that to get people to go through the journey. And that journey was created based on what were the best practices for doctors, health plans, and employers of what they were trying to get the individual to do. Pre-share care in a very fragmented way, and an effort for the person to improve their well-being. And how do you report on that? And how do you get people to engage in that? Is you know both the opportunity and the challenge.
0: Absolutely. So it's interesting. Is we've gone from let's see how content in the age of COVID nineteen can be disseminated to end users to adjust their lifestyle accordingly, to, and then we move towards all right. This is what employers get. And then this is how you interacted with large health system providers, insurance companies to kind of bring all of this content together into a a master framework. That makes me think, or at least, you know, the, the next question I have is like, do you see the logical progression from where we are right now to a place where we can see a convergence between consumer health tools like? share care, and access to medical records. In other words, like, do you see an integrated end-to-end consumer path between informational content and
1: clinical decision-making? Yeah. And maybe when we start with convergence, it's like your podcast or share care is that where I think you're seeing convergence happen to get people engaged is all around the ability to be fluent in three languages. So you have to be fluent in media, right? So how do you create data-driven content that people consume? And- you know is it articles is it videos is it pictures is it content disappear? does it stay? But you have to be in today's world to get people's attention you'll be able to create high quality trusted information and formats people will consume often those are snackable formats. The second thing is you have to be fluent in technology and so you know the technology' is moving so fast you I mean, you need to know the difference between machine learning and AI and the difference between AI and conversational AI you know and so you have to stay on top of that game. And then the third is you need to know healthcare. So what's the difference between Cerner and Epic and ICD 10 codes versus those codes? And so it's not good enough anymore to just be fluent in how to produce content or fluent in you know, how to build an EMR or you know fluent in you know, back end analytics. You really need to, you know, be able to have expertise across all three because that's what the consumer demands. And so where I look for inspiration in healthcare is I look at somebody like Netflix and I say, like, what is share care with Netflix? Everything I've just been describing for outcomes. But how would Netflix think about this conversation? They would say, well, I need to ID the person. So I need to know that that's Jeff and he's a male. And these are the characteristics of Jeff. Like I got to ID him. And then the second thing is, is I have to have capabilities. And so in that journey, I was describing prevention capabilities and disease management capabilities, insurance optimization capabilities. And then the third area where Netflix would go, which I think is the most fascinating topic, is the motivation behavioral layer. So, you know, they would be looking at Jeff's content consumption and they would be saying, what motivates him? Is he motivated by convenience? Is he motivated by accountability? Is he motivated by uh, cost, fear? You know, what is it? And then they would build me a playlist and then look at me and say, based on what motivates Jeff, he's a binger. So, you know, he's going to watch all these shows from start to finish, or he savors content. You know, he wants it, you know, given to him at the same time every day, or he likes to do it with others. So he's going to want to consume this type of information as part of his family, or he might have this other type of behavior. And so I think we're, digital health is going, to answer your question a long way, is you have to be fluent in media technology and healthcare and that you have to think about the way to deliver an outcome is almost the same way that Netflix thinks about how am I going to get you to watch that next show and serve it up in that manner.
0: So just a quick clarification, this explains like very well this end process of changing human behavior, but how do you think all of this feeds into the decision-making that are You know, clinical in their nature, like towards doctors and what decisions they can make that would impact
1: the outcome. Yeah. Well, I think that the way this is all being served up is it all has to be evidence based, and so there has to be, you know, like every solution inside the journey, right? It's like whether I'm, you know, doing your biometrics or recommending you a CBT, you know, anxiety program or putting you in a diabetes prevention program or putting you in an insulin management platform you have to assume everything I'm talking about, you know, would get over the hurdle that this is medically vetted, peer reviewed, and has return on investment. There's no component in the system that doesn't clear that bar. And so then it's a matter of, you know, to the provider, if they're prescribing it, or the health plan, is in it. it's how do you target the capabilities, you know, in a way in which the data is interoperable, the user experience is easy to understand, and it's affordable. And so like, that's back to like the framework, the you know, the criteria is, Assume that it's all evidence-based, data-driven, medically vetted, best in class. Now you have to say, now, how do I distribute that or prescribe that in a way that the data is interoperable because that's where we've all blown it. And you know, previously, is not as data talk to each other. So as we go forward in this new world, it's got to be interoperable. And then second is, you know, I've got a Medicaid patient or you know, this person works at Walmart or this person here or is in Medicare, they're not going to be able to understand everything that you're talking about. So I got to be able to turn certain things off easily and make things more accessible based on the person that I'm talking to. So there's a lot of accessibility items that kind of go into that framework checklist. And then lastly, this has to be affordable, right? So think of it like from like a Netflix backend standpoint, you're able to configure what I'm talking about by checking boxes on or off so you don't overwhelm. I wouldn't overwhelm my mother, for example, doing all the things that I just talked about. But you know, for somebody like myself and like you, I'm sure... You know, I could give you the complete menu and then I would learn yeah, from your, from how you engage to, yeah, I'd learn by your, how you engage with the platform and, and I would start to optimize it. So, you know, over time, so I would, things that I thought maybe were really important in the beginning, I would learn from you are, are less important and I would start to phase that out of the experience.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Ultimately, all this data being collected can be served back down to the consumer in the snack by piece of content or to your point just a couple of seconds ago, as a menu for for those who are more aligned with consuming content that way, or they're more knowledgeable. It's interesting to me, you know, as a mental exercise, uh, I always want to suggest that you guys purchase uh, Hippocrates from Athena Health because they control the other end of this market because they control the content served up to the 1 million uh, doctors on a day-to-day basis. It always sounds like if you guys own Hippocrates, You could have the entire end-to-end flow between what the consumer says and the recommendations that the doctors get in relation to those consumers. But there's just a side note. I do want to talk, because you brought it up now a few times on the podcast, this question of affordability of money. And I do agree with you vehemently that one of the biggest challenges with creating uh, health protocols that work is simply put money, not money when it comes to funding ideas or launching new businesses. And, you know, maybe you disagree with me, but my opinion that this whole like premise of healthcare delivery in this country is based on the idea of minimizing human contact and maximizing billables. Like, in, in other words, hospitals are concerned primarily with two metrics get people healthy or soon as possible and reduce readmission rates. But these are not probably fair metrics, you know, and they're not sustainable either. So that can companies like yours fill in that void between what healthcare providers in this country do and what's actually needed to make sure consumers make life-changing decisions that alter behavior and lead to them living longer
1: lives? Well, yeah. So I think you're talking about you know, how do you get alignment here? Right. And so, you know, what, what I hope for is, you know, when you see a, an open table sticker on a restaurant, you know, obviously that you can book an online reservation is my hope is that you'll see the share care logo on a doctor's door. And that'll tell you that that doctor's share care enabled. And so that means the doctor can prescribe share care and the doctor can get the same analytics back on the person that I give big health plans and employers and be able to use the campaign tools to deliver care plans, be able to use the telehealth tools to be able to remotely see the patient and start to build some continuity of care. But we made an acquisition about a month ago called Visualize Health. And the reason we bought that company to answer your question was, is how could we use technology to help providers go from fee-for-service to value-based care? And why we thought it was a perfect fit is we thought that, you know, if providers were gonna start to take risk and get more aligned with payment systems, then they're going to have to have connectivity with the person. Like Who would ever take risk if they didn't have that connectivity with the person? But the person was going to need to want to participate. They're not getting made to participate. And so we've been trying to kind of build that perfect ecosystem where the person wants to be on ShareCare, the doctor's ShareCare enabled, and then we have software that sits in the EMR that helps the doctor go from fee-for-service to value-based care by looking for gaps in care, by looking for improper documentation, and just makes that whole transition less less friction in that whole transition. And so that's been our strategy. Build something a consumer wants, share care, enable the doctor. And when we share care, enable the doctor, provide them telehealth tools and things that you would expect us to do, but also provide them software that makes it an easier transition for them to go to value-based care.
0: So it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about all of these concepts and how we can create solutions that work in the healthcare space. And we haven't really just talked about why we are where we are, right? I mean, reality is we live in this healthcare system in America that's incredibly fragmented and it has been fragmented for the longest time. I mean, you know, my company works with some of the biggest insurance health device manufacturing providers on creating digital experiences. For patients and consumers, and I, you know, after almost a decade, I'm thinking I've only scratched the surface. How complex the delivery of healthcare services is in America. The question to you is: Like, do you think we're finally getting to a point where we can map all of these health processes and other the hood complexities onto a solution
1: that any user can really understand and use on a daily, weekly basis? Well, I mean, I spend every day, you know, you know, pursuing that goal. So I would like, you know, to think so. And I, I think we have some kind of like the perfect storm forming to basically be able to do that. So, you know, you're seeing CMS push interoperability, right? So all these EMRs, are got all these meaningful use dollars that then blocked access to all the data. You're starting to see interoperability laws open up to give access to data. So I think that's good. Second is that you're seeing, you know, this push to ACOs and to value-based care. and Bundled payments and other things that are creating more payment alignment, which I think is good. And then the third thing is, I think this COVID nineteen pandemic is this watershed moment for healthcare, where the entire world is talking twenty four seven about healthcare and well being. That they're not going to go back from that. I mean, they're not. They're, we're not going to hit the switch, you know, on May one. And, you know, everybody being back to, hey, that, when that you know, forgot that that just happened is people are going to be talking about being resilient and they're going to be, you know, just like Zoom. And I'm sure the we works of the world are like, you know, are people ever going to come back to work? Because people are getting pretty used to working at home now and they're seeing how efficient it is and how productive they can be. I think in health, I, we're not going back to what it was. So I think the best minds in the world are thinking about this topic right now across every industry. A lot of those great minds are going to migrate into healthcare companies and healthcare technology and big tech companies of the Googles of the world that are working on all these amazing things aren't going to stop. They're just going to accelerate it. So I think you you got this watershed moment, right? You've got the interoperability loosening up. You've got these new alignment payment models that are taking shape. But more importantly, you've got the entire world leaning in right now. And I just don't see them going back to the way it was.
0: I mean, I certainly hope you're right about this you know, the kind of the cynic in me thinks that once the restrictions are lifted, people may actually go back to their old ways. But I'm really, really rooting for the idea that I'm wrong on this. And of course, that also would be... It's not everybody.
1: Yeah. 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 And obviously, it's not everybody. Yeah. You know, but I'm, it's going to be more people leaning in. I don't know what that percentage is going to be, but I would hope it'd be high.
0: Yeah, same here. Uh, definitely <laughs> higher than if we didn't have the COVID 19, right? Because it's forcing everybody to rethink how they do business, including the healthcare. I mean, I had a, another podcast guest recently from a telehealth company on the show, and he said, okay, on March 1st, maybe there's 200 telemedicine visits happening through the platform. And then yesterday, I had 450,000. It's like, uh, yeah. wow. Yes, that is uh, yeah. definitely a huge awesome. change in consumer behavior across the United wow. States. So, we're you know, as yeah. the first time I got some real hard data yeah. on how COVID 19 really changed the delivery of healthcare. So, I have no doubt. That, as always, the truth is somewhere in the middle in terms of what's going to happen with healthcare companies in the future. So let's talk a little bit about the future, because, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have access to accurate medical condition information online, and that led to the birth of WebMD. And, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have access to any platform where we can manage our health as end users, and now we have ShareCare, So Of course, there's a lot of discussions out there about AI and technology, and you've referenced it a few times on the podcast, but there's a lot of discussion, of course, about replacement of doctors with AI. So the question is, as content becomes better and more accurate over time, AI works based on the dissemination of content and automation of content. So is it possible and feasible in 10 years from now to not even have doctors?
1: I don't think so. I think the doctor-patient relationship is critical. But I am very high on AI and especially conversational AI. But I I was did a call this morning and you know, so we've been looking at how do you create so one is like where I kind of start with with conversational AI, is I think the new UI is no UI. Right. Right. So like the new user interface that we're talking about is no user interface. And so all this data is gonna live somewhere and kind of like a Siri or Alexa or through avatars or different ways I'm gonna be able to access my journey. So, you know, I'll be able to say, when was the last time I had an eye exam and schedule me a doctor's appointment and refill this prescription and how many steps have I taken and how much does this cost and where am I with my deductible? And we're so close to that. I mean, we're like 2020 close to that, you know, where all the data is getting organized in a way that it can be voice activated. But where the AI kicks in is really phenomenal. So um, one of the things that we're working on right now is last year, I think we made 10 million phone calls to members. And so we do disease management, lifestyle management, and I've got call centers with a couple hundred people in them. And we obviously, we keep all those recordings. And so the first thing we did with our AI is we said, okay, well, let's teach it how to take the real age test. And then we said, okay, now let's teach it how to do Ask MD. Okay, now let's teach it how to go through our 250,000 Q&A. And then, then we said, now let's let it loose into the recordings and let's let it learn how people talk to each other about smoking and about weight loss and about diabetes and diabetes prevention. And all that is happening and the AI is learning from those conversations while it's reading the PDR and while it's looking at all these other Medically vetted sources, so it's really fascinating. And today, I asked if we could do add uh, two other use cases, which I just thought was just an interesting exercise. I was online this morning and I googled what, is, what I can't remember how I phrased it, but I basically wanted to know what a front office staff at a doctor's office is responsible for. And I found like this 68-page document of like, you know, obviously how do you do intake and you know, and how do you do the billing and how do you get the lab results and what about HIPAA and all these things. And I was like, could we build a digital employee? the provider. I mean, could we literally replace this all you know, I say replace place all these activities that currently people don't like, getting the clipboard and checking out. And it always seems like it's so antiquated and frustrating. Could we create a digital employee through that, through this same AI that we've been working on? And the developers got really excited and, you know, are thinking through, you know, how would we do that now as well? And then I was like, well who else is in that doctor's rep that you would think that you a conversational AI system could replace when we started talking about pharma reps or device manufacturers. And so I think this concept of digital employees is a really interesting one, except when it gets to the doctor. I think then you're talking about decision support tools. Like how do I give the physician decision support tools? But then how do I also give them resources, digital employees that surround them and you know and can talk to and talk in really relevant ways. So that's a long answer of saying I think conversational AI is the future. No UI is the new UI. And I think where we could take that from digital employees to medical concierge up to decision support for the provider. It's going to be really fascinating to see how that unveils itself over the next 36 months.
0: Yeah, and I think there's, there's three things you said. One, you have the supporting personnel helping a uh, physician's practice, which could be digitized. And not only digitized, but you know, as a result of digitalization, it could actually potentially be more accurate and better for a a medical business, which I completely agree with. I remember it was 2015 when we were even talking about AI, when my company, we we developed this very quick Alexa skill that would allow people who had major surgery to answer a few questions. And the answers were submitted by the cloud to the doctor. And that was, like a huge, huge deal, like it was very easy to do, yeah. and you know people weren't even yeah. thinking about Alexa as being a you know a funnel for uh, healthcare decision making but then I also wanted nice. to kind of double down a little bit on the question of you know uh, replacing doctors because you're saying, okay, your argument is no, you still need the to human touch, but then over the last couple of years we've seen the FDA approving a tremendous amount of AI tools in the diagnostic process, right? And not only that, but we've seen time and again how AI, artificial intelligence algorithms, are much better at recognizing at a minimum cancer in one way or another. So that's already, if you think about it, replacing some of those jobs. I mean, I think radiologists would be a great example because so far, every FDA-approved solution in the radiology space has been better than humans. So don't you think that is replacing humans, even if we're not saying replace all doctors? From the yeah. ground up, we're seeing the automatization of decision-making, clinical decision-making already happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as you know, these technology advances, the workforce will change. And I think that there, you know, the physical exam and the empathy and the continuity of care is going to be important in the value chain and that a lot of the things that we're talking about are going to make providers more, you know, it's going to create more precision medicine and allow them to you know, improve longevity and outcomes. Uh, But I think there's a role. I think the medical profession from a doctor to a nurse to a front office staff is going to evolve with these technology advancements and it's going to move towards precision medicine. But, But I view a lot of this as decision support. Because I think the physical exam is going to matter. And I can see a world, like I'm sure you can, that it could matter less and less over time. But I think empathy is going to matter. And I think continuity is going to play a role. So I think it's like yeah. thing, you know? There's you know,
0: right. So if we think that, you know, doctors are not going to be replaced, like today we have 1.2 million doctors. Do we, what's your prediction about either the number of doctors that we will have, you know, 10 years from now or, what are the components in the clinical decision-making process that will be mostly automated versus the ones that will still be requiring a human intervention from a clinical perspective?
1: Well, you know, I don't know if I'm the qualified I am to answer that question, but you know, kind of my personal view is that you know, these hospitals of the future are going to look more like NASA than they look like heads and beds. And we're going to have really rich analytics and we're going to have a connected society and we're going to have decision support capabilities that we've never seen before. And I think that what will be at the center of that data is the patient and the provider. Now, the relationship might look very different. It might be home care instead of sick care, but that bond will still be there. The skill sets might be different you know, the policies and procedures might shift, but that's where I think we're going. I think that this is going to, the hospital, of the future will look more like NASA than heads and beds. It's going to be a connected society. And, and I don't think this is a 2030 vision. I think it's 2025 reality. We'll get there in the next five years.
0: I couldn't agree more. Jeff, thank you so much for being in the How Weekly podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Really appreciate your participation. Yeah, great. Nice talking to you. I hope to talk to you again soon. Take care. Stay safe. Will do. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at healthcareweekly.com. Subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app to get a notification every time a new episode is released. Do you know of an inspirational health leader who should be on our podcast? Email us at hello at healthcareweekly.com with details. Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Healthcare innovation starts here.